Google is a fairly large company, so there's always opportunities to help bring a product idea or a product strategy to fruition. And there is a way of working within companies to be able to get sponsorship from leadership and get the interim milestones to win the momentum that you need to get to the next level of scalability for your product. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Catherine Chow is in many ways the quintessential Googler, super smart, a passion for computer science, an engineer through and through. On today's show, we'll learn how this rock star at Google decided to turn her talents to healthcare, and we'll hear what she's discovered about healthcare and herself along the way. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa, you have just... Well, first, good day. Good day. I understand that you uh, recently came back from what sounds like a fabulous uh, trip down under. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was terrific. I um, got So what to, was the excuse for your going? My excuse for going was to do some work with uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Einar Sawyer, Fantastic. and to uh, help her out on a project that I'd promised as a friend to do with the uh, Murdoch Children's Research Institute down in Melbourne. Uh, and it was an amazing experience, actually, both because I got to see koalas, wallabies, and little blue penguins, but also because I got to work with some terrific uh, people, really innovative, interesting, and committed people who are trying to improve particularly children's health. And, you know, the thing that really struck me about about the experience, aside from the fact that there are blue penguins, which I did not know, is um, how much innovation goes on outside the the walls of the U.S. and how much we don't think about it here, you know, and how we should. Um, it was really great, uh, the, and that is a particularly esteemed children's uh, hospital that it's attached to, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. Plus, Australia is cool as hell. What can I yeah, I liked your pictures, and uh, <laughs> it sounds really amazing. And speaking of amazing, I am delighted to welcome to the show today uh, Catherine Chow, Head of Product for Health Research and Medical Brain at Google. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So just a touch of context here. Um, The daughter of two aerospace engineers and the granddaughter of a prominent Taiwanese artist, Catherine was a precocious kid who had her first computer, a 32-bit Amiga 1000, Lisa, because I know you're curious, (laughs) when she was four. Oh, I totally have one of those. Yeah, you had two. She apparently excelled in most everything, in and out of the classroom, this is Catherine, not Lisa, and, and, took <laughs> math and, that. and took math and science courses in college while still in high school, while also pursuing piano, ballet, taekwondo, science olympiad, <laughs> etc. So separated at birth, can, again, right, Lisa? Oh, totally, so, yeah. um, That was so me all over. Sh- all right, poor Lisa. We're going to stop. Okay, so <laughs> shockingly not, Catherine wound up at Stanford. Which rejected where, me, by the way. <laughs> um, and they're still, uh, they're still uh, um, Working recovering. Working on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where where um, Catherine planned to major in international relations. Catherine, now that we're both suitably humbled, perhaps you could uh, take up the story from here. What were your thoughts when you came to when you came to Stanford? What did you think you were going to do? Um, I, as you said, I actually thought I was going to do international relations, and and thank you for such a great introduction. I I do think that um, you make me sound much more uh, glamorous than I actually am. <laughs> I, I think it was. Uh, 
uh, by um, actually just coincidence, I ended up in a lot of these situations. But uh, the one thing I tend to do is pursue what I'm passionate about. So at the time when I got to Stanford, I was very interested in uh, traveling and working globally. Um, and I actually didn't realize I would have an interest in technology, but Stanford has this incredible curriculum for computer science when I got there in 99 and uh, it really just was extremely compelling and practical. Uh, so when I started taking it, it just drew me in. And um, and, and so I, it was actually uh, pivoted me from international relations to uh, computer science, but that was it. I, I ended up getting back to that when I went to Google. Wow. So I see that you double majored, though, in economics. So you were looking for something fictional to balance out the consumer, the computer science, or, or <laughs> what was that about? Um, the economics was uh, part of my interest is just in business strategy. Um, I, ah. yeah, and I, I just find it very interesting You'll from my past experience going from uh, mobile industry to payments to the healthcare industry. Um, I just find how businesses work together um, in trying to look for these sort of opportunities to get a positive sum game out of them so that it's a win-win scenario. Google was perfect for this because we were able to find a way to um, help the community and serve users for search, but then also be able to uh, find an orthogonal business stream that uh, helped actually drive um, better and better, more products. So it's something that um, I always look for when building out a product is if there's a way we can both help the users and also make it a sustainable business. Well, that's not, it sounds like having sort of the grounding in economics certainly will be uh, both useful and interesting when, um, when, when we'll get to later, uh, you know, understanding the healthcare system where some of the uh, incentives seem, um, seem perverse. But getting back to the Stanford thing for a second, one of the, one of the um, being there in 1999 must have been such an interesting time because my understanding is you were there both during, in computer science, in fact, during both the boom and then the dot-com collapse. What, how, was that, how did you experience that on campus? Yeah, that's fascinating for me because um, actually computer science, when I first got there, was extremely popular. Um, the classes were packed, uh, and when the dot-com uh, bubble burst, uh, actually uh, all the com- a lot of students dropped out. They actually switched back to economics or law, and um, and wow. it, it was just interesting to see be in the classes and see that difference. Um, but there's people who I actually um, didn't, didn't bother me at all because I, at that point in time, really enjoyed uh, the classes and the teachers were amazing. Um, and the kind of assignments that you're given uh, are really well thought through. The support structure that they have for the teachers, um, the TAs, as well as the section leaders, um, it's just a very, very supportive community. And then you immediately are able to connect with folks in industry during the summers to be able to actually apply your skills. And so the vocational aspect of it kicked in right in freshman year for me. So that was one of the most compelling reasons why I continued working in computer science. It's so interesting because, you know, Lisa, we always hear about how Stanford is such a mecca for for CS, but we don't always understand why. And here you Mm -hmm. almost sort of get from the inside the experience. And I think it's also, again, interesting from a biology perspective how, you know, they're totally comfortable with 
the inter the, the industry interactions, and they have been for a while. Yeah, whereas yeah. I think it's taken um, healthcare longer to get there. Yeah. So, um, so Catherine, so you graduated, then you went on to pursue a master's in CS at Stanford, focused on graphics, and it, it sounds like a. Uh, you faced a particularly interesting decision, haven't we all, when you were thinking about internships during this time. And you were looking at three very different opportunities. I mean, I remember for me, it was like, you know, pipette in lab A, B, or C. But here, your options were A, work on the movie The Matrix, B, work on software development for the Mars rover, or C, go to Microsoft to pursue sort of a management opportunity as an engineer. Um, How did you think through that and where did you land? (laughs) She became a Starbucks uh, barista, it was obviously. Actually, somebody, <laughs> yesterday I was actually talking to a girl who was asking me how I ended up making decisions in my life. And being presented so clearly with such different choices at the time allowed me to actually really think about what the trade-offs were and what I really cared about. So what happened for me personally was even though I'm very much interested in creativity and um, pursuing uh, the artistic aspects, um, given my grandfather and my background, uh, I actually knew the difference between, at least I could feel the difference between artists that really just had this intensity um, and and Pulsion for doing art all the time, no matter what. And 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 what I uh, actually was interested in, which was much more globally uh, oriented. And um, and so that was one of the reasons why I didn't go down the pursue the route of working on the Matrix movie was that I could see that it's it would get pretty niche in terms of I would be in the uh, space of designing for uh, the movie. Um, uh, Kind of the scenery and all of that, but it was it was something that for me uh, wasn't as wasn't as broad as I was looking for. And then the alternative of going down and working on uh, exploring space, um, I've also seen the passion intensity there. Which for me, um, uh, I I just came back from an amazing trip where I was able to learn about astrophysics at the same time. And it's, it really is a hobby of mine where I, I really enjoy learning about it. But uh, again, my compulsion, what drove me was to actually think about the world globally and what's happening right here. And so being able to think about uh, all these different careers at the same time and just assuming that if I picked one, I was going to be able to somehow uh, be successful there if I did go down that path was how I approached the problem. And so even though it's odd that I ended up picking Microsoft and working there from program management because it's maybe the most broad out of all of the choices, um, it was actually quite intentional because I wanted to have the skill set to work on as many spaces as possible in the future. So what were the different skills you needed for being a manager instead of being an engineer? How, how did that transition go for you? Because I think that's a, a really challenging one for a lot of people who come up through the, the computer education, you know, the computer science education route, per se. Um, I, I think there's two things uh, that I found myself uh, developing as I was trying to go down. The product management route which is in business uh, management was uh, communications and strategy. So I, I think the technical skills is a skill set that you want to be able to leverage, um, but there's other skills that can actually solve a problem. So if your end goal is to ultimately impact the world in a certain way and solve the problem, you can solve it many different ways. You can solve it through business um, 
relations. You can solve it through uh, a technical solution. You can solve it through better product design. Um, but if you want all of those um, uh, options available to you, uh, you tend to move towards a um, uh, product management type role. And, and so I think that that's what happened for me. Um, I, I needed to actually improve and develop my communication skill as well. So it's one of the things I'm quite shy about, but uh, it, it is uh, something that actually is very important in the role because uh, you can only do so much, I think, as an individual and communication is key to actually be able to um, uh, bring a broader audience and, uh, uh, and reach a greater group of people who can actually come together and form a community to um, make a larger impact. I think you're so right. I think communication is a is a really underestimated skill set. Communication skills are very underestimated skill set. And I say it again, Lisa. Yeah, really. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I couldn't agree with you more because I really believe communication skills are an underappreciated skill set. Um, but I think uh, a struggle that occurs for lots of folks uh, with your background, or, or with really with any kind of sort of specific skill background is that tension between between doing and, and encouraging others to do. Do you miss the doing? Um, actually, I always, that is a great question. Uh, I always try to actually keep a certain percentage of my time where I get to directly uh, do the individual work. I, I actually think it's very important. Um, mm. I work in the healthcare space now, and there's folks on the team who have MDs, and they also are uh, engineers, and they uh, are helping to develop the products. And they spend, some of them spend time actually still in practice um, going to the hospital. And I think it's actually critical to know what's going on, to be able to actually do some of the work yourself. I, I don't think that um, uh, it's, it's terrible if you don't do it at all, but um, for me, it's fairly important. So actually, I tend to still uh, work on things like uh, directly with engineers on developing the models as well as um, thinking through uh, the product designs with our user research team. Uh, the hands-on experience is is both rewarding and I feel helps me do my job better. Um, it's just the balance that I try to maintain. I guess the flip side of that is I, I imagine it, it, um, it can be really hard to, you know, in any, you know, savvy tech organization to lead engineers. And the fact that, you know, you can do it with such credibility because you have natural talent for that, your, you know, natural plus developed talent for that um, makes an aspect of the leadership easier because they'll, you know, the people who you're trying to lead or manage under, you know, you understand what their struggles are. You understand what the issues are at a visceral level. Absolutely. I actually uh, also recommended to someone yesterday uh, that uh, she was asking if she should continue pursuing uh, a master's in computer science and or she should switch. And for me, actually, I'm really glad that I got the foundation that I did in the technical background, even though I don't do coding day to day anymore. Um, and it's because I can actually uh, communicate well and relate and also understand the kind of uh, complexity that is going on um, when you have to balance the trade-offs between what the engineers need to do to meet their deadlines and then also what the, let's say, the business needs are or what the product goals are. And um, all of this 
helps to make sure that you have a much more successful product at the end of the day. It's so interesting. I feel like I can really relate to that because I even even in my own experiences, I feel like my experiences, you know, as a you know, as someone who saw patients in practice, as someone who has mm-hmm. been in drug development, I, I feel like I have a visceral understanding of what it's like to be in those roles and and the challenges that the people there are dealing with. So um so just moving on, you enjoyed your time at Microsoft, you completed your master's, and then you were con- contacted by a colleague who was Google's first engineer saying, there's this little Mountain View company, something, something, maybe you want to check it out. Is that kind of uh, how you got involved? Well, um, yes, <laughs> it was. The, uh, Craig Silverstein was my introduction to Google. Um, he's an extremely humble person who probably doesn't want me talking about him. So, um, uh, but- I imagine you guys have that in common. <laughs> But he he was uh, did not actually say who he was. He just said, "Oh, he rec- encouraged me to actually apply to Google," and I did. And um, and I applied to the role that seemed the most uh, interesting to me at the time, which was at the nexus of uh, business and uh, technical development. So it was basically developing products on behalf of Google for partnerships. And what were those four partnerships? I started... Who were they with? Oh, I started in the mobile space. And uh, that was actually uh, really early days back when you just had flip phones. iPhone wasn't out yet. Um, And when you got on your phone, mostly used it for calling other people. But uh, uh, if you recall, you could actually uh, get to ringtones and see some browsable content, but it was actually all behind these walled gardens that the telecom companies actually controlled. And so uh, what we did was form partnerships to uh, enable access to the internet and search and um, in exchange for a new business model for the uh, telecom industry so that they could actually uh, generate revenue off of ads. And this was sort of the win-win situation was get users to be able to access the internet, um, but then also allow the businesses to find a new way of generating revenue. Um, and uh, we worked started with internationally before getting to the U.S. on that one, but it was actually fairly successful. And you also led two global teams working on um, mm-hmm. content acquisition for YouTube and Google Maps. Is that right? That's right. And then also the global partner solutions and operation team that built out Google's uh, commerce and payments um, uh, business. Is that is, is 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 do I have that right? Um, um, so, so, do you know the Google Maps people? Do you still work with them? Do you have a complaint, Lisa? Yeah, because nobody can no no Uber driver can ever find my house. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can maybe we can talk later about how to fix this problem. <laughs> yeah, they, they have to get by all the gate, all the walled gardens. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. That's right. All right. All right. But uh, but but I guess what's so interesting is among across all of your experiences at Google, um, you've described yourself within Google as a serial intrapreneur. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Um, yeah. So uh, I like to incubate products, and Google is a fairly large company, so. Uh, there's always opportunities to help bring a product idea or product strategy um, to fruition. And uh, it's, there is a way of working within companies to do something similar as what you do externally, which is to uh, be able to get sponsorship from leadership and also to be able to get the interim milestones to win the momentum that you need to get to the next level of um, scalability for your product. And so uh, the 
as I mentioned earlier, the mobile product started off with just one partnership, but we landed a fairly big one at the time, which was with um, Vodafone and then KDDI and Docomo. So it ended up being something where uh, once we were able to establish that there was value, it grew from there. Um, similarly, uh, when I was doing mobile payments, uh, it was a really early starting founding team that I worked with. And uh, the idea of trying to do payments uh, without um, like just your mobile phone was something that was known internationally, but in the US was not actually, had not picked up. Apple Pay wasn't around at the time. And in fact, um, uh, what we had to do was create the rails and work with the uh, manufacturers as well as the um, retail stores to be able to lay down the protocols to be able to do payments like that through your mobile phone. And we did those as open standards, um, which actually I think are the same ones that um, are being used now uh, by Apple. So it's, it's nice to actually be able to lay this foundation down that even if uh, Google doesn't end up using it, other communities can come in and, and actually uh, develop more on top of it. I think that's such a great attitude. And I think that, you know, I think you even sort of got it some of this when you were talking about, um, you know, you just the um, your ability to jump into different incredibly daunting problems with, with incredible fearlessness. And when I asked you how, how you how, you, you know, how you do that, you said, well, a key aspect is that you're truly motivated by, quote, doing the right thing. And this means taking myself out of the picture. Help help us understand what you mean by that. Um there's two aspects I think might make people uh, afraid of approaching a problem. One is whether they're good enough, and the other is um, whether what they're doing is the right thing. But I think um, I have just the general belief that if I'm actually um, doing the best for the broader community and the greater good, uh, I don't worry as much about um, uh, if I make mistakes because ultimately I'll learn from those mistakes and I'll correct and I will make them better. So, um, so this is something where I, it really helped me to just focus on uh, what is the problem I'm ultimately trying to solve. And then I'll find solutions, work with the right people. If I don't know the answers of, I will be able to help find the right people to, to, to help. And um, if they're motivated for the right reasons, they will join in and help. And so I've never found an issue with kind of uh, the generosity of others around me to be able to um, find the right path uh, to a, a better way to solving a problem. Um, and then the other thing that I had been thinking about since we had talked was that uh, one of the issues where people are afraid of um, approaching problem because they're afraid they don't know enough, uh, I have one kind of technique around this, which is uh, usually I think there a person has at least three areas of expertise they've mastered. Um, maybe one is technically what their skill sets are. Um, another is basically their the subject matter, like what domain it is. And then the third is functionally what they do. So an example would be right now for me in healthcare, I'm, I'm specializing technically in AI and uh, the subject matters in healthcare, and I'm functionally a product manager. If I were to down the road decide that I wanted to pursue a slightly different path, I typically keep two of those things the same and pivot one of them. So I might say, you know, I really actually want to go into user design. I might pivot the user design, but keep the other two the same and stay in AI and healthcare. But 
um, actually just change my function or alternatively I would change the domain and keep the other, my technical expertise, my function the same. So that's one way that I've been approaching just entering what seems like completely different spaces, but actually feeling like I have some, some skills to bring to the table. So what got, so then how did you get to healthcare? Was it that you were looking some, for something that was more which um, two which two were constant and what thing yeah, changed? Yeah, were you looking and were you looking for something that, you know, served that doing the right thing or that passion for for doing well, you know, by doing good or were you looking for something else or how did that transition occur? Cuz that's a pretty hard right turn that you made there. Yeah. It seems like definitely a, a an odd leap from where I was before cuz I was in Android um, developing uh, kind of APIs for that space. Um, what a couple of things happened. One was I wanted to work on something that um, I personally was extremely passionate about, and sustainability is something I'm personally very passionate about. I kind of see it as if you can't take care of your own body, you're going to have a hard time taking care of the planet and you just have one of each. And so it was definitely in my mind related. And um, and so for me, the passion transferred as in I cared about sustainability and there, thus I also cared about healthcare and, and making sure that that was less wasteful and much more um, about how users can take care of themselves. Um, but uh, in terms of my skill sets and how I ended up getting there, um, I was brought in because of my past experience of incubating new businesses. So functionally, I was doing the exact same thing as before, even though the domain was completely changing. Um, technically, I was still in doing software. Um, I remember at the time, Golex is pretty focused on hardware. And I said that would be too much of a leap if I went from software to hardware. Um, but I, I looked for the part of the organization that was doing software development, which happened to be life sciences as I was developing. And so I stayed in the software space. I stayed uh, doing the same functional role, but I did a hard switch on the subject matter expertise. Now that you're in this really exciting area and you're doing, like you're saying, the intersection of AI and healthcare and some high-profile products, the, the the recent work involving making predictions based on um, scans of, of people's retinas, there's so much interesting stuff you're excited in. What's an example of a product, of, of a project that especially that you've been really thrilled by and, and um, what's that experience been like? There's a lot of projects I'm pretty excited about. Um, the one that recently uh, was published as a paper is the ability to detect um, cardiovascular risk with the retina. Um, this is a really early study. and uh, But what I, I think is really great about machine learning is just the ability to detect patterns that people were not able to detect before. So even though we started in the retina space to detect diabetic retinopathy, the leading cause of blindness, um, uh, we and other eye diseases, which is typically why you take a photo of your eye um, to be able to uh, diagnose those. Uh, we also had enough outcomes data that we could actually start doing correlations with other types of um, outcomes. And uh, because your eye has retina, uh, not not right now, because your eye has arteries and neurons in it, there was uh, a hypothesis that you could potentially detect 
um, cardiovascular or neurodegenerative issues. And so one of the ones we uh, did some research around was just seeing if there was uh, uh, the ability to, to have some level of detection of cardiovascular risk through the retina. And so um, that's these sorts of novel biomarkers is something that I think uh, machine learning is uh, primed to be able to help with. Um, so that's one of the projects. Right. Well, what's so interesting, I guess, about your approach there is you're explicitly saying essentially, I mean, uh, sort of unabashedly, this is our technology. Where can we interestingly apply it? Like you have the opportunity to sort of evaluate the application of the technology for it, for its own sake. But it's not, there's not some, here's a specific clinical problem that we are determined to solve. Let's use whatever the right technology is. The, the mission of your kind of research group or the group that you're a part of is, is, is that right or did I misunderstand that? Oh, um, yeah, I might correct that slightly, which is that um, uh, our, we actually have a mission, which is to improve the accuracy and availability of healthcare with AI. And um, that means trying to increase the supply of high quality care that's out there. Um, that is actually our mission. And typically uh, what you'll see come out of this is actually all of our research is applied and it's tied exactly to how can we actually improve computer aid diagnostics or how can we help with um, uh, automating some of the clinical workflow or clerical or administrative tasks that burden the clinician so that they can focus on the patients or do more important activities. Um, so that's, that is our actually um, uh, very much an applied research space. It, there is the side benefit of the works that we do where we actually get scientific novel discoveries. And that is something that um, uh, we is, p could fall into fundamental research, but actually does have ultimately uh, a larger underlying intent, which is, you know, can we get to, a, in this case, we were looking for a way to get to non-invasive uh, better non-invasive monitoring. And uh, the eye is one of the best places to do that. So there was still an intent with the research that was done here. Um, uh, but I, I think that uh, that might not be the core of our mission. It happens to be one of the secondary goals of our what we do. This, this uh, eye being the window, apparently not just to the soul, but to everything else inside, I guess. <laughs> Very interesting. So, you know, you've had this this kind of lifelong um, technology engagement. And yet I understand you're also very passionate about the wildlife conservancy, that you have a, another side to you that is not about the bits and bytes. How, how does that fit into your, to your whole being? Uh, it's very important to me. Uh, I, I, this is also happened about the time when I pivoted into the healthcare space, which is, as I said, I really want to just pursue um, uh my passion for trying to um, optimize the way we spend resources and also renew resources. And wildlife conservation was uh, somewhat uh, something I cared about, but uh, the fact that I got quite deeply into it was also um, uh, sort of serendipitous because I uh, was going to Africa to give a talk at a conference and I wanted to, since it's my first time in Africa, try and go on safari. And uh, on, but I had this side 
goal, I, I tend to do workations. Um, I had this idea of actually learning about conservation at the same time. So I looked for a place where they allowed me to actually go to the headquarters, uh, go as deep as I could to learn about conservation while I was on safari. And um, Lewa was one of the few places that showed up that would allow me to do that. Um, I went there and uh, it turned out that I met phenomenal people, really kind people who um, was, were telling me about the issue of um, essentially having tourists come from China and not being able to communicate easily with them in terms of explaining the importance of conservation. It was something that I felt like I could help with because I had worked previously in China for a few years. And, um, and so I started volunteering my time to help them with that. It kind of went from there to um, helping become their tech advisor. And then uh, they asked me to join their board. So I got quite deeply involved through just an initial um, interest of mine to learn more. And I tend to find that's the case as I try to learn more and just be helpful. It, it does expand. You meet people and there's all these opportunities if you're looking. That's great. I um, Do you have a favorite animal? Is there an animal that you were particularly taken with on the trip? <laughs> um, yeah, I I, my my favorite animals do change, um, but uh, we have uh, black rhinos, which are endangered species. And so it's one of the ones that I had met was a baby rhino when I was leaving. And they're yeah. actually quite friendly when they're young. They're about as heavy as several bowling balls. So when they come and push you over, even though they're, they come up to your knees, they really just take you out. So... Um, it's it's both cute and it's uh, <laughs> and you just have to be slightly careful around yeah. them. It's funny. I saw an article just this weekend about how there's only one white rhino left in the world. Um, it's in captivity, and I, I just thought that was the saddest thing ever. There's many types of white rhinos, but that yeah. that particular species is is going extinct. The northern white rhino. Yeah, very sad. Anyway, so I really feel like I also went to Africa the first time about 18 months ago, and it was very profound uh, for me as well. Oh, that's great. So, uh, you know, it's been wonderful to talk to you, really interesting. And uh, it's always so interesting to hear what's going on at Google, because so much is going on at Google in every category. And it's, um, you know, and the fact that um, both they have folks like like you, who just is incredible, rich technical experience, and then that you're able to of all the things you could do, decide to apply it to healthcare. It just seems like such a such a hopeful thing for us all. So thank you so much for joining us and for, for sharing some of your passion and vision with us. Thank you so much for asking me to come. You know, I thought that was that was really interesting, and um, you know, it was exciting to hear what she's up to. But also, you know, her thinking is is she's such a sort of a purpose driven and deliberate person. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I was like taking notes, you know, and how to make decisions. That was pretty thoughtful. Well, you know, it's like her <laughs> and her thinking seems sort of, sort of so, um, you know, thoughtful and structured. And like, I, I'd like to think, just I, like you're saying, I guess the. Po- I think you're proving your point right now, David. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. There you go. No, she was right. terrific. Really, uh, <laughs> the folks from Google, they are usually quite remarkable. So it was uh, great to have her join uh, the ranks of Tectonics alongside. Uh, and speaking of joining us. <laughs> some of the others. So join us next time when our guest will be Eric Luthert, um, who is 
an expert on the brain. That is fantastic. I look forward to uh, that discussion. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Suna at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Good day. Mate.